welcome to The Last Best Hope, the podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, which looks at America from the outside in. My name's Adam Smith. In this episode, we're talking about crises. How do we know one when we see it? When and why do they begin and end? And how do they shape historical development? The term crisis has medical roots. The 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary defined it as that change which indicates recovery or death. Will the fever break and the patient be restored to health, or is this the end? But beginning in the 17th century, it was also used as a metaphor for the body politic. Mr Speaker, this is the crisis of Parliament's. By this, we shall know whether parliaments will live or die. Mr. Speaker, we are not now upon the business of the kingdom. We are upon the very essence of it, whether we shall be a kingdom or no. That was Sir Benjamin Rudyard, poet and member of parliament, in a speech to the House of Commons on the 22nd of March, 1626. Later, at the end of the 18th century, during the American and French revolutions, people began to apply the term widely to the secular realm. Tom Paine's series of pamphlets commenting on the American Revolution, for example, was just called The Crisis. And then in the 1850s and 60s, as America collapsed into war, the notion of crisis was widely used to imply that this was an existential moment. It would either destroy or would entirely reforge the nation. The turning point in a disease is a crisis. So is a journey on a railroad or a steamboat in a man's history, for he is then placed in so critical a position that he scarcely knows whether he ought to hope for life or prepare for death. At present... The nation, considered politically, has reached this turning point, this critical moment, and will soon arrive safely at the end of its pleasant excursion, or be blown into fragments by an explosion, or be crushed by a collision. It will shortly recover from its convulsions, or die under the disease of politics. Crisis is the proper and the best word to express the existing state of the country. New York Ledger, October 25th, 1856. The term crisis implied that time itself had sped up and that for better or worse, one epoch was ending and something else beginning. Well, joining me now to discuss the idea of crisis and how it's shaped America is Jay Sexton, the Kinder Institute Chair of Constitutional Democracy at the University of Missouri, formerly the director of the RAI here in Oxford. Jay's most recent book is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History, which was published by Basic Books in 2018. Jay, uh, thanks so much for for joining me on the uh, Last Best Hope podcast. It's great to see you. How are you? I'm, I'm doing good, and it's good good to see you, Adam. 
Jay, we're talking about what is a crisis. I mean, it feels like we're in the middle of a crisis at the moment. Everybody's using the word, but it kind of feels to me like people have been using the word crisis for a good few years. So, you know, as historians, how do we know a crisis from a non-crisis? How do we detect a real crisis from a false one? Well, we 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 want to listen to what our observers at the time are saying, but th- they can't be the ones that make that determination for us. Because as you say, um, everything's a crisis, everything, higher ed crisis, drugs crisis, housing crisis, et cetera. Um, so we have to impose some kind of, of order on this. And the way that I, I've done it is to um, have a, a couple of, of benchmarks about what determines what a crisis is. Um, the first is pretty simple. Uh, a crisis cannot be contained. Um, so, so, you know, a, a malady, a, an illness in one sector of public life kind of spreads to another and existing political structures cannot contain the, the contagion. Um, and I'm using this, uh, the metaphors here of, of, of health because actually a lot of the observers in the, in the New Deal, especially, but also in the, in the days of the Civil War and at other moments of acute crisis, um, th- thought of these things as, as pandemics. I mean, you think of Roosevelt's quarantine speech, uh, for instance. So you, here you have an example of historical actors understanding something is spreading and metastasizing. So that's the first kind of benchmark I use. The second is, I think, um, uh, perhaps the more significant one in terms of thinking about crisis leading to a different political outcome, to being a moment of transformation. And that is when you have one of these metastasizing uh, crises, it requires rapid uh, mobilization of power. And that's a, a wrenching process of political change that uporders um, existing ways of doing things. It doesn't clear the decks completely. Old structures remain standing. In fact, old, old ways of doing things sometimes get a new lease on life. Uh, during a crisis. But what you have is the mobilization of power and the complete transformation of the way of a, po- a political order operates. So those are my two sort of benchmarks for thinking about this. The medical analogy, I mean, it's not just an al- analogy. It's, it's, I mean, it's the root of the word rests in a kind of medical idea, doesn't it? Certainly, I mean, what I can see in the way that people wrote about it in the 19th century and earlier when they use the word crisis to apply to politics or commerce, they're more self-consciously than they would be nowadays using it as a metaphor. Yeah. Um, the, bo- the body politic yeah. is like the body. Yeah, ab- absolutely. E- existential. There's, there's, there's no going back to the way things used to be. And then the, the other thing about the, the language, that metaphor, and when it emerges in the, uh, in the 19th century, and, and you'll know this probably better than me, but a lot of the public health scares and when crisis was used and the body politic was in danger. I mean, you're, you're talking about, um, port cities and epidemics. You're talking about cholera things that, that, um, begin in one society and then somehow transfer to another. And so you have these early like quarantines, don't you? In the, in the, in that, in that period. And I think that's when that language really, really takes, really takes off. The United States was created as an independent country in a context of, of, of world crisis of which what was happening and what was happening in North America was only a, a subsection of a larger world crisis in the late 18th century. 
Absolutely. I mean, you have uh, the upending of a, of a geopolitical order. You have um, the, a shift in the balance of power globally, and then also within within the old world, within Europe itself, you have the ascendance of of Great Britain, and so the United States is a byproduct of of that process. I mean, you also have a, a sudden, rapid, dramatic growth of the uh, economy, population, and power of, of British North America from the sort of mid-18th century onwards. So you have, you know, all kinds of rapid change, geopolitical change and economic change, and the, the old political institutions, the old hoary political institutions, and I'm not persuaded by these people who say that the early 18th century British Empire was so much more sophisticated than we think, uh, perhaps, but it wasn't able to adapt to those new circumstances. Uh, certainly not. Um, so that's the crisis that, that Tom Paine is talking about. Of course, Tom Paine, uh, an immigrant to the, to the United States, he'd only been in Philadelphia, what, 16 months when he's writing uh, Common Sense. He's a product of this rapid moment of transformation. If today the crisis is being caused by a literal and actual virus, what was the contagion that was unstoppable in the late 18th century? The the contagion, I think, at it at its heart was uh, sudden, uh, unexpected growth um, in North America, and this put strains on the geopolitical order. This put immense strains on the it, it imperial administration of the British Empire. It put strains on um, relations between settlers and indigenous peoples. It put strains on the uh, colonial societies. Uh, themselves and, and social relations and social tensions intensified. Um, growth, in other words, and uh, this is a characteristic not just of the uh, run-up to the American Revolution. I'd say it's a characteristic of run-up to, to, to the other crises I talk about. But sudden growth um, booms can be just as perilous to political establishments as can busts. Uh, you know, crisis of of growth. So I think that if I if I had to zoom in on one factor and how I open that chapter, that's what I that's what I that's what I talk about. Um, and when you have a, 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 an economic burst, a demographic burst, um, the the old the old institutions are unable to keep up, um, and something new needs to to emerge in their place. Um, so that that's that's how I would answer that one. Yeah. So. Okay, so the upheavals of the 18th century meet the criteria for a crisis for two reasons. Number one, because the underlying problems, whatever they were, whether they were demographic, economic, ideological, were uncontrollable. They metastasized, to use that brilliant medical analogy, in ways that were unpredictable. And secondly, because the response to those problems, which in the case of North America was the movement for American independence was a response that ended up sweeping away important dimensions of the old order, that what was left at the end of this crisis was something fundamentally different from what had been there uh, before. There was no going back. A very similar pattern occurred in the middle of the 19th century, didn't it, in the second big moment of crisis that you uh, write about in your book, which was the problem of slavery, which again metastasized in unpredictable ways, affected economic life, obviously p 
political life, religious life. In the end, the political institutions of the country couldn't cope with it. There was a huge civil war. Three quarters of a million people were killed. It was a massive traumatic event. The response, the mobilization of the state, the building of the Union Army created a United States as a response to that crisis, which was profoundly different from the one that had existed before. So how does the Civil War fit into your schema exactly? Well, I mean, in, in, this, in the schema, again, uh, prioritizing how America fits in to the, to the broader international system, what, what's left standing is uh, a settlement of the internal political controversy which had inhibited the the growth of american power geopolitically because the united states didn't know what it was going to be was it going to be pro-slavery and free trade or is it going to be anti-slavery and protectionist um okay and and so you come out the other end in 1865 you have a more powerful central state a more powerful federal government though you still have that a lingering tradition to talk about the old things that persist, uh, you know, federalism and states' rights is very powerful um, after 1865. But you do have a new apparatus. You do have a, a new a, a industrializing system of finance capitalism based in the urban Northeast, which is on its on its way to becoming the center of the global economy within the next uh, half century. Um, and then you have um, t- three things in particular, I think, that are really important after 1865. One, uh, the United States becomes the world's um, most desirable market for uh, capital, the world's largest debtor nation, and for migrant labor. The United States attracts 25% of global migrants um, in the from the sort of mid-19th century to the days of the First World War. 25% of international migrants. It's like a giant hoover sucking up capital and labor. And this was not, by no means um, uh, um, um, written in stone that this was going to happen. I mean, the 1850s sees really powerful nativist, xenophobic um, political movements emerge uh, in the North. So one of the interesting things about the Civil War is the way in which um, immigrant military service um, flips the social politics of immigration. 25% of the Union Army is foreign-born. That's like the least known but most important statistic about the Civil War. 25% are foreign-born. If you include second generation, that number goes up to 43%. And then if you attack onto that, obviously the uh, military service of African Americans, you have a majority of the Union Army is minority. I don't know why that's not taught in schools mm-hmm. here. So you got capital, you got immigrants, and then the third thing is you have protection. Um, the United States obviously is going to have some of the highest tariffs in the world. This is the golden age of protectionism. Um, it's going to spawn competitors with uh, Japan and Germany to also upstart um, rivals. But the, the, the sort of fundamentals of how America is going to position itself within the wider world order are completely transformed um, by, the, by the American Civil War, even though we tend to think of it in, in, internal, in internal terms. Do you know I love I love your metaphor of the Hoover. Um, we we're, we more often hear the metaphor of the magnet, right? Which is which is much gentler, isn't it? Um, and it and it applies 
and it and it implies uh, attraction, doesn't it? Whereas the Hoover, it's just brute force, right? <laughs> in your in your Hoover metaphor, what is it that's providing the electricity or the motor that powers the Hoover? It's I guess it's economic transformation, it's industrialization, and it's and the need for a, a labor force. Yeah, I mean that's the that's what's sucking in, and of course it, there's the push factors from economic dislocation and change in 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 Europe and indeed across the Pacific. Um, so so that's there. But now I know that you're a, a scholar of ideas, and that you'll rake me over the coals if I don't miss mention ideas. But I, ideas are, I suppose, uh, relevant here or belong into this d- discussion. Um, you know, the Civil War does a lot to uh, improve America's international reputation and standing. I mean, you think about the global celebrity of Abraham Lincoln, the self-made man. Here is a place um, that uh, has an opportunity where the, the normal guy born in a log cabin can 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 raise uh, himself all the way up to the highest office of the land. A lot of those immigrants that end up in the in the Union Army um, come to the United States uh, because you, you you have the prospect of land ownership and um and independence, uh, you know, individual autonomy, and and that's both an economic practice and structure, but it, but it's also an abstraction. Uh, it's it's an idea, and you just can't have that really in a slaveholding society. Confederacy has nothing to offer um, uh, f- for foreign immigrants. Some, nevertheless, uh, did go, of course, didn't they? There were, you know, there were Irish immigrants going into Charleston and so on, and it, which has always um, kind of fascinated me. Um, so the, the 19th century crisis left the United States much stronger in geopolitical terms, just as the late 18th century crisis did. And, and the third big crisis moment that you write about in your book is the crisis of the period, let's say, 1929 to 1945, the period of the Great Depression and the New Deal and the Second World War. And that, of course, that also, in a very dramatic way, left the United States in a in a vastly more powerful position in a geopolitical sense than it had before. That crisis began, I mean, you were talking about this earlier, that began as a financial crisis. At least that was the way it was experienced at the time a financial crisis on Wall Street. And that was the sense of contagion that nobody knew how to deal with this sudden collapse of financial confidence. But it became a lot of other things as well, didn't it? So how would you characterize that 20th century crisis moment? What made that a crisis and what were the forces driving it? Well, just the sheer scale. I mean, just the the sheer scale of the um, the the social costs of the of the collapse of the global economy. The sheer scale is is surely important in understanding the the cost and the and the scope of the crisis. But the scale is also um, relevant when you th- think about um, not just things like unemployment and, and social conflict in the United States, but when you think about the global dimensions and the global response um, to the to the to the Great Depression. And and here you have an intensification of the trends from the First World War of nations turning inwards, of of nationalist political um, responses, of tariffs. Uh, immigration restrictions 
this is, of course, when the old 1865 order of open borders is finally comes to an end. It's actually before uh, the Great Depression, but that nationalism coming out of the of the Great War. Um, and then, obviously, international rivalry and competition and ultimately global warfare. So the, the really th- interesting thing about this um, moment is how you have that nationalist response. But what you get coming out the other end is America uh, that looks completely different from it has uh, before. Uh, an, an internationalist America, free trade, uh, buying into international institutions, the U.N., uh, binding alliances like uh, NATO, um, very different from what you, you you saw not just after the Civil War, but what you saw in the nineteen in the nineteen twenties and thirties. So that that's a moment of complete um, and unexpected transformation. So, if each of these three crises that we've talked about led to the United States being more powerful geopolitically than they had been at the beginning. What's the prognosis for the current crisis? I just can't see. This is what keeps me up at night, really. I can't see how the United States comes out the other end of this um, uh, uh, in any way but weaker internationally. Um, and, and, of course, one could point to the current administration that deserves a whole lot of blame um, on how it's handled the specifics, but this is, but the, you know, the climax of what's been a long running trend that has, um, carried through successive administrations of, of both parties. Um, the other thing I would say, Adam, is that, you know, b- before the whole pandemic, um, you know, after 2016, everyone was scratching their heads about how do we explain Brexit and how do we explain uh, the election of, of Donald Trump? And one of the ideas that was out there um, and was kind of discredited, but I still buy into it, was that um, what's at stake is um, how these Western democracies are going to relate to the wider world. You know, this so-called closed versus open debate. Are we going to be closed? Are we going to have tariffs? Are we going to shut down immigration? Are we going to pursue nationalist policies in the international arena? Or are we going to try to remain open, as we have been um, relatively so since 1945? Immigrants, of international free trade, free flow of investment, free flow of ideas, and strengthening international institutions. And uh, more than ever, I think that this crisis is accelerating that debate. It's raising the stakes of it. And to me, um, uh, the fear is that it's giving the advocates of, of, of the closed side, of the nationalist side, it's giving them um, a newfound advantage. I mean, tariffs are the name of the day, border controls, uh, surveillance, uh, you, you name it, that is playing into their hands. Uh, if you want me to be optimistic, um, from at least from where I I don't sit, necessarily want you to be optimistic. You Go for the optimism. Let me be optimistic. Let's have optimistic. So, so on the, uh, uh, if, you're, if you're an advocate of internationalism, as am I, and you think it's served both the United States and Great Britain, but also it's it's served the wider world uh, pretty well. Um, you would say things like, well, an international pandemic so obviously demands international solutions. I mean, it's just blatantly 
obvious that there's no solution to this crisis that doesn't uh, cross national borders. And in particular, you could point to things like scientific collaboration. That could be really, really important um, in sowing seeds of other kinds of international uh, uh, collaboration. And then the other thing that springs to my mind is um, the, the actual shared experience of quarantining. I mean, when was the last time that uh, that people here in in the middle of Missouri, in Boone County, Missouri, um, were experiencing something uh, very similar to what you're experiencing across the sea in Oxford, or what someone in in Tokyo or in or in Mumbai is is experiencing? It could be a, a shared experience, a crucible, which could um, increase identification uh, across borders. So that that's that's me looking for the glass being half full. I don't, I don't know what what do you think from sitting over there. No, I I think your your last point about the shared experience is a really interesting one because it 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 reminds us, doesn't it, that there is a, there's a generational experience of crisis. There's you, you don't have to search very far in writings about the Great Depression yes. or the Civil War or the Revolution to to hear people writing about this. This was the formative moment of our lives. We were young then when it happened. This was the experience that shaped us. Um, so the the big question in my mind is, is, you know, the coronavirus generation. I don't know how that generation is defined, but I guess it's probably people, probably people younger than you and I, Jay, but that for whom, for whom, who, and it is, of course, younger people who are bearing the the heaviest burden it's just an interesting question of how this experience which may go on for a long time we just don't know will shape their political values their sense of how they can organize what kinds of institutions they want to build yeah we just don't know at the moment it sure would be sure i mean it, it sure would be nice if a spokesperson a leader emerged um to to communicate the the meaning of all of this and to create I- identification across borders. I mean, you, you know, an old fashioned thing to say here, but I, I believe it is if you want to know why uh, America's long running tradition of Anglophobia kind of evaporates in the Second World War, um, you ought to start with the way in which Churchill's speeches um, and ideas spread across the United States and resonated with with listeners. He gave meaning to that conflict, um, and in doing so, completely scrambled and upended um, uh, America's uh, political aversion to uh, binding alliances and to to Great Britain um, in particular. And wouldn't it be great if if someone kind of finds a way to emerge through all the through all the noise, through all the clutter? There's just too many people talking these days, instead of not enough. But if someone's voice was there, and and that message that she or, or he um, was articulating was one that resonated in different uh, national contexts. In in every crisis, in in the crises we've been talking about in this conversation, there are people jumping in trying to shape the crisis moment and push it in one direction or another. And in each of those three moments, you know, the outcome that happened that wasn't foreordained, right? I mean, they. The, as you say in your book, you know the 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 rebel the rebels could easily have been defeated in their attempt to um, establish independence. Uh, there are other outcomes, certainly other outcomes imaginable in the slavery crisis of the eighteen fifties and sixties. 
And there are certainly other political outcomes possible after the crash of 1929. So we're in a situation now, aren't we, where, you know, all that is solid melts into air. And the question is, who is going to be able to shape the flailing pieces and put something together again uh, in the in the coming in the coming years? That's it's a it's a great. Do you know, Jay? I don't know. <laughs> How about you? Um, uh, uh, um, no, but you know what I'd say, man, is that uh, if we if we want to just think about this in 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 American terms, from the perspective of the United States, um, you know, the 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 most overlooked actors in American history um, are foreign powers, are are foreign states. And it's, I guess, natural that that's been the case because most American history has been written since 1945 when the United States has really um, been a global hegemon. And so it's, you know, no one's really thought much about anyone else determining the course of U.S. history. But one of the points uh, I tried to make in that book is uh, foreign powers played critical, crucial roles, as did immigrants, as did immigrants. Um, and, and you don't hear much about the role played by by them. And so to answer your question with the pandemic um, and with the nature of, of, of the United States' political system right now in disarray, um, I would be surprised if the United States is is the player that emerges on the international scene. Uh, we might we might want to look elsewhere. That you got me you got me on Jay, a pessim- I... you got me pessimistic again. At the end here. <laughs> we, we were optimistic for a moment there, and then we went back to pessimism, didn't we? Do you, is there a bit of you that is, as a historian, as someone you know interested in transformation? professionally and how the world comes to be as it is is there a bit of you that's kind of a little bit of you that's sort of enjoying living in this exciting moment when 10 years of change happens in two weeks uh not not really i i kind of like the old order (laughs) (laughs) you know the old order was there was a lot going uh, for us in the old order and but no, and I, but I do stay up yeah. at night, man. I, that I, you know, the United States and its international role that keeps me up at night. And I, I, I I'm not a defender or apologist of American power, but I happen to think um, that post 1945 America got more right than it got wrong, uh, more right than it got wrong. And I'm I'm not as confident that whatever might come out the other end of a of a geopolitical shakeup. Um, the same will be able to be said of it. Just a last thought, really. I guess the concept of crisis works, the concept of non-crisis on which it is dependent is more problematic when you start to kind of look into it um, too closely, doesn't it? Because an awful lot of things change and there are an awful lot of mini crises within the periods of non-crisis. No, I mean, it's a great, no, it's a a totally, totally fair point um, and and a good one. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's, there isn't like equilibrium um, in between these moments. But again, again, um, if you step back, okay, and you're looking at the map and you're thinking about it that way and you're seeing the global flows, um, you're, you're seeing the, the relative power, um, you're seeing the kind of broader international system and how America fits in. And if that's your perspective, which is mine, so from 30,000 feet looking down, um, you know, the, the, the crises over the McKinley tariff debates in 1890 or the, the crisis of 1898, those things, um, 
don't really they're not game changers they're they're just the unfolding of of a particular geopolitical order um so you know when you're talking about uh, how individuals experience it i mean the question that stumped me the most uh, one time when i gave a little lecture on the, on the book someone said you've written a book about crisis what does it have to tell us about resilience I'm like, oh God, I don't know. I mean, I don't actually talk about people in the book. I mean, that's that's not my interest. Um, um, right. So it's just it's just all relative to to what's going to be your frame. I mean, what what are you actually looking at? What are you trying to solve? This, this has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, th- thanks for having me, and and I hope everybody over there staying safe with the virus. Jay Sexton of the University of Missouri, and we were referring there to his book, A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History. If our present moment rises to the level of a crisis by historical standards, the one thing that we know is that we don't know what the world will look like at the end of it. Some people think that the essential condition of modernity is perpetual crisis. But separating the signal from the noise, as historians must do, we can see that there are times when the plates really do shift, when empires fall and worlds collapse. If, as Jay says, the United States has emerged from its formative three crises stronger and with a vacuum-like pull to the rest of the world, now may be the time when that phase of global history the phase in which the United States was, in many respects, at the centre of its story, finally comes to an end. Or it may not. This is the last Best Hope podcast from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. My name's Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.